Hey, you got your Bibles, flip those open to Matthew chapter 25. So glad you're taking this journey with us in the middle of this series, but basically it's an initiative through all for all. For four years, we're going to stir some things that are really near and dear to my heart uh, as we walk these next four years together. First of all, we said this, that we want to lead through a movement of prayer. And so that was two weeks ago, a churchwide movement that makes prayer our first response instead of our last resort. And so we want that to be our impulse, our reflex, right? Uh, organically, organized. I pray that you'll come join us Tuesday night uh, as we pray together as a church. But I pray there would be all kinds of prayer initiatives popping up in homes and groups and school all over the place. And then we said this, a culture of discipleship, church-wide culture that makes his final command, Jesus' final command, our first priority. We talked about that last week. What would it mean for us to look on our inside gap, to look at our man over, people in our natural pathway of life, and near linebacker, intentional, maybe next generation kind of discipleship relationships. And so I'm praying that uh, you would begin praying for those that are in those particular lanes of your life uh, as we run into this together. Begin stir this the next four years. Uh, what I want to talk to you about for the next few minutes, you have your Bibles open to Matthew 25, is a mindset of investment. A church-wide mindset that makes advancing Jesus' kingdom our primary investment. I just want to talk to you about that for a little bit. And I want to start by just asking you a question. If you could, one to three words, sum up the ministry, life, teachings of Jesus in one to three words, what would you say? Um, I've asked this question multiple times to people, and I get all kinds of answers like love, forgiveness, uh, people, heaven and hell, money, uh, because people are ready for the question. They know Jesus talked about money more than a lot of other issues, right? And I would say those all could be great answers, but when you really look at the life of Jesus and you want to sum up what it was that he kind of had his eye on, it was his priority, was his ambition, it was the kingdom of God, it was the kingdom of heaven. And, and really to not understand that, or maybe to misunderstand that, is to not understand his mission and even his message. And I would suggest this, to not understand the kingdom of God and how obsessed he was with it, uh, is to not understand our own life. It's almost like we go through life and not understanding his purpose and his intention for our life. I used this illustration several years ago, but I used it again when my kids were young. We used to play this game called Old Maid. You ever play Old Maid? Like the, the secret to the game is you don't want to end up with the Old Maid, which is great, right, to play with little kids, except uh, my youngest, Aaron, uh, and I don't know, Aaron, if you're watching this, I'm sorry for calling you out, but he weren't real good at this game because no matter how many times we told him that you didn't want to end up with the Old Maids, so he just kind of picked the cars, he wanted to end up with the old maid. He thought to win was to have the old maid. And so you might go to pick that card out of his hand. He'd grab it tighter. He'd get mad if you tried to grab the old maid. He lost every single time at the game because he was playing with some upside down rules. And I really do believe a lot of people go through life losing because we look at life through an upside down lens and Jesus came, kingdom of God message, and he says, I want to turn everything upside down. I want to turn it right side up is maybe the way I would say it. He was obsessed with the kingdom. Uh, he preached about it. He came to preach the good news of the kingdom, it says. Uh, he said, when you pray, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, he told his disciples and followers, uh, seek first his kingdom. He said, I'll give the keys to the kingdom. He taught parables on the kingdom. Over 80 times in the gospels, Jesus talking about the kingdom. He was obsessed with it. 
Uh, it was the, well, where is the kingdom? Maybe that's a good question. Where is his kingdom? Well, his kingdom is just where Jesus rules and reigns. It's the space where he rules and reigns as Savior, Lord, and King. So that tells me something that what does it look like? Well, like I already said, it takes in our upside down world and it puts on a right side up lens. That in this upside down world, I would say his kingdom looks upside down. It looks counterintuitive to our world. I, I, I believe that his kingdom is like taking the map, which most people are looking at upside down and turning it right side up. Instead of revenge, he says, forgive. Instead of uh, how can I be great? He says, the way to be great is to serve. Uh, for him in the kingdom of God, truth and grace can come in the same package, repentance instead of revolt. It's, it's, it's a right side up kingdom in an upside down world. What well, begs the question, when's it coming? Well, the fact of the matter is, if, if the kingdom of God exists in those in whom Jesus rules and reigns, then it's here right now, but not completely yet. Well, that's confusing, Dan. <laughs> it is, I'm sure. But the best illustration I've heard uh, of it is that if you think of World War II, June 6, 1944, the amphibious landing on the beaches of Normandy kind of led to seal the fate of World War II. It, it secured the victory. But if you know your history, the war and the fighting went on for about a year until the troops, resi resilient as they were, pushed on to Berlin. And after the uh, apparent, apparent suicide of Hitler, they made it to Berlin and D-Day, which was June 6, 1944, when they stormed the beaches, the victory was won, was consummated about a year later, May 7, 1945, in what they call VE Day, Victory Day. And many historians would say that the victory of World War II was inaugurated on D-Day, 1944, June 6. But it was consummated on VE Day, May 7, 1945. And I think that helps me understand the kingdom of God because when Jesus came and died, was buried, rose again, he sealed the fate, the victory over sin, death, and Satan. Victory's been won. Colossians 2, very clear about that. The fact of the matter is, Jesus, after he rose again, he left and he's coming back. And that's when the victory is going to be consummated, new heaven, new earth. It's going to be consummated with all things being made new, relationships restored, races reconciled, differences settled, injustices made right. VE Day. And all that being said, then, leads to Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Because his disciples were taking all this in about the kingdom, and they wanted to know how it would all shake down at the end. In fact, his disciples kind of ask a question. They were sitting on the Mount of Olives and they came to him privately and said, tell us, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming, the end of the age? They're like, how's this all going to shake out? And so Jesus then tells some parables. And the point of his parables are simply this, be ready. When Jesus comes back, be ready. You do not want to miss the party. <laughs> you do not want to miss the wedding feast, so to speak. Uh, not only be ready, but be watching. One eye to the sky, so to speak. Be waiting and watching. And like that is the emphasis of much of his teaching here. But I would say this, guys, like if I were honest, a lot of Christians stop there. I would honestly say this. A lot of Christians and Christ followers and church people focus solely on the question, are you ready to die? 
Or they become preoccupied with, much like the disciples, they become preoccupied with when he will return and how it all go down. But Jesus wants to focus on a question, and the question is this, what do we do in the in-between? And how in the world, from the time he went back to heaven to the time he's going to come again, how in the world do we live in such a way that we don't waste our life? Which is why you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 25, because he says, be ready, be watching, and be working. Invest your life. I was uh, reading this book. I've read it several years ago. It's Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful People and Leaders and things like that. And he has this like exercise, if my memory doesn't fail me right, that he uh, encourages you to kind of time capsule yourself to your funeral. And the question that he says is, uh, think to yourself, what do you hope people will say when you get to the end of your life? It will help direct how you live your life in the here and now. And that's an interesting exercise, right? And it's sobering and it's interesting to think about. I mean, I do a lot of people's funerals and I listen to what people say about people that have passed and I'm like, it, it, I can't help but think, I wonder what they'll say someday when that's me. But when you get to Matthew 25, the question is not so much what others will say as to what will God say. That's the focus. And what... The point of Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14, is be investing your life. Don't waste your life. Don't waste this time in the in-between. Now, Matthew 25, where you have your Bibles open, is a parable. Let me do a little Bible teaching here. Parable is just a little story Jesus would tell to lay alongside. That's what the word parable means, to lay alongside a really big idea, to illustrate it. This particular story is about a wealthy uh, property owner who, in, who he is going to entrust his wealth to his servants. And then he's going to go away for a while. And then he's going to come back and see what they've done with what he's entrusted to them. Can you see already? Like he, the people in the parable represent somebody. Jesus is going to go away for a while. He's going to come back and he wants to know, what did you do with what I've entrusted to you? That's the whole point of this parable. Don't waste your life. Invest your life. Make the most of your opportunity. So all I want to do for the next 20 minutes or so is read this with you. Make some observations. I don't have any points for you to write down. You write down whatever strikes you as we read this. And then I want to end somewhere. Because the parable begins this way. The parable begins, again, it, kingdom of God, and it being Jesus telling this story will be like a man going on a journey. And this man called his servants and he entrusted his wealth to them. Now what's interesting is he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about a man going on a journey. It's already easy to equate. He's talking about, he's trying to help illustrate for them. Jesus is going to leave them, but he's going to come back again someday. And so in the meantime, this one who's going to leave, God in the flesh is going to entrust his wealth to them. And it makes me think something. If you're taking notes, it might be worth writing down that if I'm going to live in such a way that doesn't waste my life, I got to realize first and foremost that everything that I have, that you have, that we have comes from God, belongs to God. The initial key to making sense of my life and not wasting it, but yet investing it as a follower of Jesus in particular, is to recognize everything. Say that word with me out loud. Everything I have comes from God Everything I have belongs to God. You're saying, Dan, what do you mean by everything? My time comes from God, belongs to God. 
My resources comes from God, belongs to God. My gifts and my talents and my abilities come from God and they belong to God. My influence, my position comes from God, belongs to God. You see, that radically changes, that radically turns the map a different way as I navigate life. If everything belongs to God, comes from God, it changes the way I navigate through life. I think about my kids uh, growing up. Occasionally, uh, you would say to them, go clean your room. They might say, well, it's my room. I don't want to clean it. That was always an interesting comeback to me, right? It's your what? It's my room. And I like it messy. And I would always think in the back of my head, it's your room. I'm paying for that room that you're living in, right? It's actually my room that I'm allowing you to live in, right? Or, or, or you get them a phone and it's on your plan and you're paying for it. And you're like, hey, let me see your phone. And they're like, no, I, it's my phone. And it's like, well, kind of. I'm paying for the phone. So it's actually my phone that I'm allowing you to use. You see, the mindset of everything belongs to him, everything comes from him, is the difference between being entitled and grumbling and griping or being entrusted. He entrusts with us with what we have and being grateful. The story goes on. It's fascinating. To one, he gave five bags of gold. Literally, the word in the Greek is talents. I'll get to that in a second. To another, two talents, bags of gold. And to another, one talent or bag of gold, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. First, I want to say this, these bags of gold literally is talents. And for them, that would have been a significant amount of money. That, that it would have been, one commentator said, 20 years of wages for a common laborer. Like that's what it meant. Like he gave to, so there, he's handing out quite a bit. Even the guy who gets one gets 20 years of wages for a common laborer. That's like amazing. But remember, he's telling a parable to make a point. And he wants us to know that he's getting ready to leave, that God entrusts us with what we have, and then he gives to us five, two, one, whatever the case may be. And what in the world do these bags of gold or these talents represent? They represent anything that you and I have been entrusted by God with. It's not just like my talent, I can play the guitar, but it's my resources, my abilities, my intellect, my opportunities, my relationships, anything that God entrusts me with is my talents, my bags of gold. There's different amounts, but if you read the story, there are no zero talent people. So in the story, the man goes on his journey. And it wouldn't be long when the disciples would know exactly what he's talking about because Jesus is going to be killed and buried and rise again, and then he's going to leave them. You can kind of see this story playing out, and as he leaves them, he entrusts them with certain things. As the story goes on, the man who had received five bags of gold went, circle this in your Bibles, at once and put his money to work and gained five more. It's interesting, right? That at, at, at once, right away, this guy who was given five talents or five bags of gold put that money to work. He went and began to deposit. He began to work with that money so that it might increase. He made investments, what he did. 
You know what that makes me think? I'd circle that word at once. You know why I told you to circle that? You got to write this down somewhere because delayed obedience is really disobedience. Oh boy, right? I mean, that's what it makes me think. It's so easy for me to not at once, to delay my obedience, to put off what I know God wants me to do. I love there's a story in John 2. Uh, you can go check me on this. But Jesus shows up to this uh, wedding. His mom's there, and they run out of wine, right? And so she involves Jesus. Eventually, she says something to the servants nearby. She looks at them, and she says this, and I'll quote it right from the scriptures. Do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you. What a motto for life. Do whatever he tells you. When he tells you, do it. They did, and a miracle was on the other side of their obedience. I wonder in this space that we're in today what it is that he wants you to do. You know he wants you to do it, and you've been putting it off. I just wonder. I wonder what it is that I know he wants me to do. I've just been putting it off. Isn't it easy? Let's just think about it. Isn't it easy for you and I to live the life someday? Someday I'll get to it. Someday I'll do it. Someday I'll reach out to my neighbor. Someday I'll make things right with my parents. Someday I'll spend time with my kids. Someday I'll get involved in church. Someday I'll start praying more. Someday I'll write that letter that expresses my heart to them. Someday, so easy to buy the lie of someday. It makes me think of this passage. Jesus uh, had a brother who wrote a book in the New Testament, half-brother. Ma imagine that. His name is James. Uh, who ended up being a follower and a believer of Jesus. I mean, that's pretty amazing in and of itself. It, it, just stop for a second. But if you had a brother, raise your hand if you have a brother. <laughs> I have one. I love my brother. If you watch this, Keith, I love you. But if my brother came home one day and said, hey, uh, just wanted to let you know something. I, I am God in the flesh. I'm like, you a lot of things, but you ain't that. <laughs> right? Like, it, it's pretty amazing if your brother goes from doubting to believing. Why is that? Because he saw the resurrected Jesus. So he writes this letter and he cautioned in his letter about the lie of someday. I think we have it here. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. You don't know what will happen tomorrow, he says. What's your life? You're a mist, fog, here, gone. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Now look at this next verse. Verse 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. When you and I buy the lie of someday, we end up missing the opportunity of the one day we've been promised, and that's today. And then he says, to know the good I ought to do today, to recognize what Jesus wants me to do today and not do it, is sin. When we think of sin sometimes, we think in terms of the sin of commission, the things that we commit, the evil, the, the, the breaking the commands. What he's saying is to know what Jesus wants me to do and not do it is sin. Back to our story. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. The two-talent guy, I kind of like, that's how I grew up learning the story, but two bags of gold, the two-talent guy, he goes off and does the same thing. He got two talents. He got two bags of gold, but he went and at once, the assumption is, the implication is from what, the way Jesus teaches this, he put it to work. 
right away. No delayed obedience. Immediately, I'm going to go take what's been entrusted to me and put it to work. But the one who had received one bag, one talent, went off, dug a hole in the ground, so he's working, <laughs> and he hid his master's money. You see this very different response. Uh, he plays it safe. He protects his assets. He buries his what? His talent. He buries his talent. What's interesting is this, is after a long time, so you see Jesus, remember, he's telling his parable. He's going to come back. He wants us to see that this parable is about he's left, so we live in this time in between, right, that he's coming back. And he's saying this, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with him. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus is pointing to the fact that he was crucified, buried, rose again, and then he left. He ascended into heaven. But he told them, I'm coming back. I'm returning. You and I live between verses 15 and 19. We live in the in-between of Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We live in between the virtual D-Day and this coming VE day. Each of us have been entrusted with resources, gifts, opportunities, relationships, influences, and time in this great in-between moment. What I find interesting, if you're right in your Bible, I, I recommend you do that, but he says he settled accounts with him. Don't miss this. I like, like I have written down in my Bible, Jesus is coming back. And we, I will give an accounting before God. You will as well. Like, he, he wants them to get the point. Like, we live in this in-between. Jesus is coming back, and we will. Now, there are two accountings. When you look at the book of Revelation and how things roll out, the first is this. Each of us will give an accounting for our sin. I will settle my sin account. Uh, that accounting, for those of you who are interested in something, is called the great white throne judgment. Because God is holy and just, our sin must be paid for. And there are only two ways, two ways our sin can be paid for. Either I atone for my own sin and pay for my own sin with a life that is eternally separated from God, or I accept his payment, or the word is the atonement that he paid for my sin, that substituted himself in my place for my sin. That's substitutionary atonement. I will give an account for my sin. You will give an account for your sin. And then when Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sin. And he cried this, this word in the Greek. He said, tetelestai. It means to be paid in full. And I'll either rely on what he did on the cross for me or I will spend eternity separated from God. I'll either sit with my king who was judged in my place, or I will take my place in front of the king who will at that point judge me. See how that works? But there's a second accounting. I'll give an account for my life. As a follower of Christ, I'll give an account for my life for every word, deed, motive of my life in response to what he did for me. Like if Jesus did that for me, then I'll give an accounting for the things that he's entrusted to me as one of his children. That's called the judgment seat of Christ. 
And there, there is either regret or reward. Second Corinthians says, for we must all, verse 10, chapter 5, stand before Christ to be judged. We'll each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Because we understand this incredible responsibility to the Lord, we work hard, he says, to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. So Jesus is telling this parable, and I think in here we see that there, he's returning, and there's an accounting. Look at what it says. It says this, The man who had received five bags of gold brought the, the other five. He said, Master, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. I love how he starts here. First, he starts this, Master, you entrusted. Like He's never lost sight of the fact that everything he has comes from God. It belongs to God. And I get the sense, I'm, I'm reading this in here, but I get the sense he's eager to see the master, right? Like he's, he's excited. It makes me think like when my dad would give me something to do, he's like, hey, Dan, here, the project I want you to do, I'm going to be going away. I'm coming back uh, this evening. And if I got to work and got that thing done and man, I was eager to see my dad. My dad would come over like, hey, dad, how you doing? Like I'd, I'd meet him at the car, right? I get the sense this guy's eager. What's interesting to me is his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm intrigued by this. Circle these words, well done. Not great intentions. He says, well done. I have written down in my Bible that good investments, not good intentions, are what are rewarded. I really believe that many of us have good intentions, but it's good investments. It's well done. I'm reminded again of the words of Jesus' half-brother. He said this, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're just kidding yourselves. I just think a lot of us are kidding ourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, forget what you look like. Imagine if you did that this morning, like looked in there, I was like, oh Lord, right? Like, right, right? Like you look in the mirror in the morning, what do you think? Like, dear Lord. And, and so that's why you have a sink under your mirror, right? Because there's like some things got to happen. There's some manufacturing got to take place, right? Yeah, he's like, but to look at the word and walk away and do nothing is like looking in the mirror and, 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 and like, okay, I see, but nothing. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. I'm struck by this. I had a guy come to me last week. We talk about making disciples. This is what he said to me. He says, I, he was like, I'm convicted. Like, I'm convicted, Dan. Like, th that was like, like God showed him something from the word. He's like, I've been a follower of Christ for a long time, and I've not been doing that. This morning, he's meeting with somebody, walking in a discipleship relationship with them. He like saw the mirror and he's like, there's, I got to do something. What's interesting is the man with two bags of gold came. He said, master, like he's eager to, you entrust me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. The two talent guy uh, intrigues me. Honestly, this dude intrigues me. Like I'm a middle child, so it's easy to lose this guy. Talk about the five talent guy and the one talent guy, right? I got middle child syndrome, I guess. I don't know. Middle children out there? Yeah. We have a support group, I guess. This guy intrigues me, <laughs> right? Yeah, he didn't get the five, and 
He, he could have got hung up on the fact he didn't have five talents. You and I can get hung up on that. It's easy to get hung up when we compare our lives with others. Did you know that? When we compare our lives to other people's lives, it's easy to become discontent. It's easy to look what other people have and say we don't have what they have. And here's what happens. We, we are constantly comparing our lives with other people. And you know what's made it worse is that thing you carry around in your pocket, that little cell phone, right? Because people are all the time taking selfies of themselves. And what we do is we compare our unfiltered reality with their filtered life. And so we see this family on Facebook, like perfect family, or like best vacation ever. We don't know the big old fiasco that happened just to get the picture taken. Uh, we don't know the fussing and the fighting that took place just so they could smile and like, so you could look at their filtered life and say, man, I wish I was them. Here's what I know. You ought to write this down somewhere. The comparison will cripple obedience. There's no win to comparison. If I compare my life to you and I think, wow, I'm glad I'm not you. I'm, I, I'm way better off than you. It's going to lead me to pride. And I'm going to forget that everything I have has been entrusted to me belongs to God. But if I look at you and you got five talents and I got two talents, it's going to lead to discontentment. We start acting like we did something to deserve what it is we have, or we start saying, I would make a difference if God would have made me the five-talent guy. This dude didn't do that. He's like, God, you gave me two, and I'm going to put that to work. I'm going to invest what you gave me. I'm not going to delay. His master replied, well done. Good and what? Faithful servant. You've been faithful, circle that, with a few things, I'll put you in charge of many. Come and share in your master's happiness. Several things strike me here. Do you see what he says? He says the same thing. The master said, he doesn't look at the two talent guy and say this, why didn't you bring five talents to me like five talent festas did or whatever, you know? He didn't do that. It tells me something about the master who I think represents Jesus here, that he rewards faithfulness, not fruitfulness. It's the faithfulness. Here's why I think that's important. A lot of fruitfulness happens after the faithful people are even gone. They can spend their entire life investing their life, their resources, their opportunities, their influence, their energy into something that will far outlast him. Sometimes they don't even live long enough to see the entire harvest or the fruit of their labors. I will tell you, man, we, we here at the Norton Campus Grace Church, Akron, Ohio, we are that kind of people. Last year, we did 60-plus funerals. Not everybody was from here. We do a lot in the community and things like that. But we did a lot of funerals for people who have invested their life, their time, their resources, their energy into what it is that we get a chance to be a part of. And their investment is something that is far outlasting them. The fruit of what we get to see today is, are things that they didn't get a chance to see or experience. The fruit of tomorrow are things that they invested in, trusting God with. And he says, well done. It's your faithfulness. Be faithful with what I've given you. And that's when you're going to experience happiness because you're going to turn the map right side up. You're going to put the lens on and see this upside down world in a right side up way. And you're going to be joining in the happiness that comes from partnering with what Jesus is doing in the world. Wow. I want that. Come and share in your master's happiness. 
But then there's this guy. He received one talent. Came, master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man. Harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you haven't scattered. I was afraid. Do you see something right off the bat? His assessment of the master is way different than the other two guys. He's almost accusatory, right? And so he says, so I was, circle that, afraid. Fear is the enemy to faith. And he went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. You see how different his response is? It's almost like he's talking to a different guy. It's almost like he has an accusatory tone. So look at what happens. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servants. Like, whoa, wait a second. I got what you gave me. I got exactly what you gave me. I'm going to come giving it right back. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, you then you should have put my money on deposit, at least taken it to the bank, gotten some interest that way. So when I returned, you would have received it back with interest. Man, I think this is interesting. He says, you wicked and lazy servant. You know what it makes me think? It makes me think playing, like, like I have this written in my bio. It's like playing it safe won't please God. Like he's playing it safe. He's like, I played it safe. I did nothing. And, and fear is what drove him to do nothing. Fear is the enemy to faith, not doubt. Faith is going to follow even when there's doubts. But fear will paralyze. And this guy, he says, you're wicked and you're lazy. Don't miss what's going on. This guy didn't go out and squander what the master gave him. He didn't spend it. He didn't even lose it. He did nothing with it. And he says, because you did nothing with what I gave you, you wicked, lazy servant. He buried his talent. I think it's easy to bury our talent. You know how I think it's easy to do that? We bury it in our busyness. <laughs> We're so busy pursuing our comfort that we avoid his commission. We're so busy making a name for ourselves, we forget to make his name famous. We're so busy, sometimes preoccupied with our hobbies that we never get involved in his mission. We're so busy focusing on ourselves that we stop serving others. We can get so busy reacting to everything around us that we see on the news that we stop praying. We get so busy looking for our happiness that we quit sharing in the master's happiness. Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Aka Indians who eventually was killed by those Indians that he sought to share the gospel with. And he said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What's interesting, he says, take that talent or bag of gold from him, give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Because he's putting it to work. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Instead of enjoying the master's happiness, he's enjoying something very different. Listen, this dude does not end up in outside darkness and shut off from the master's happiness because he mismanaged his money, his talent, his gold. Listen close. He doesn't end up in outer darkness away from the master's happiness because he mismanaged his money. He mismanaged his money and missed the master's happiness because he didn't know the master. His response to the master is way different than the other two guys. Here's what it makes me think. We get to the end of this story, and I think this to myself. I think, do you know Jesus? 
Like, honestly, do you know Jesus? Your life will never make sense to you until you make him Savior, Lord, and King and put on the glasses and begin to follow him as your king in this upside-down world and begin to see the right-side-up kingdom of Jesus, advancing his kingdom, making that your priority, your passion, your ambition. If you've never said yes to Jesus, one day each of us will give an account for our sin and I will either trust what he did for me on the cross or I at that point will pay for my sin and spend eternity apart from God. You can right there say yes to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as your King. He died for you. He loves you. It's the only way for you to be forgiven of your sin, become part of the family of God, and have a forever hope. A lot of you would say, well, I'm a follower of Christ. Well, then can I just say this? Here we sit on this little time together. Some of us are sitting here five-talent people. Some of us are sitting here two-talent people. Some of us one-talent. And Jesus is saying this, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. But I want you to invest your life in advancing the kingdom of God. And how you view God will determine how you invest whatever it is he's entrusted to you. Can I ask you this? What's he entrusted to you? What's he asking you to do? What's he asking you to do? What is it that you would do for him and for his glory in the gospel that if you knew it wouldn't fail, you would do it right now? Maybe that's what you should be doing. You don't have to be some well-known person of notoriety. By all outside evaluations, Myrtle was a one-talent person. She wasn't highly educated. She stayed at home with her children. One day someone shared the love of Jesus with her and the good news of the gospel. Jesus captured her heart and Myrtle gave her heart and life to Christ and began investing her one talent, so to speak, in what Jesus was obsessed with, and that was the kingdom of God. Her husband was not a Christian, but she made sure her kids knew Jesus. She served at her church. She faithfully invested whatever resources God allowed her to have for his kingdom. Myrtle was not famous. You've probably never heard of Myrtle. She never wrote a book. She never spoke at a conference. No one would want her to. And she didn't live a very long life. She died in her 60s. But when she died, she had the satisfaction of knowing that her three children knew Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King. And her husband by this time had trusted Christ. But she didn't see the fruit that would come from all her faithfulness. Her three children grew up to pursue Jesus and his kingdom, and her oldest became a pastor of a small country church. He faithfully pastored there for years and years. At the height of his ministry, the most that he would have ever had in his church would have been about 250 people. He led many to Christ, but he would never be famous. He would never write a book. He would never speak at conferences. His name is not recognizable in national circles, but he faithfully invested the resources of his life into the kingdom of Jesus. And I'm so glad he did. Because even though you may never have met him, maybe you've never heard of him, I grew up calling him dad. You see, the fact of the matter is, Myrtle took her one talent and she invested it. And God decided to grow it. What, what is it that, you, that, he, that he's entrusted to you? When I think is true individually, is true for us as a church, 20 years from now, I'll be 76 years old. How about you? How old will you be? <laughs> Here's what I know. 
the kid who is five years old right now in 20 years will be 25. And the investments of faithfulness that we make today are part of the harvest of fruitfulness for that day. Did you know that? We as a church sit here as the fruit of the faithfulness of others. The fact that you're able to watch this is because there's people who sacrificially desire to invest their life in a way that would outgive it. They, for years and years, gave up what they could not keep to gain that which they would never lose. Some of them are with Jesus today. That has been the case for years. Ten years ago, this group of people decided not to play it safe. Playing it safe was not an option. They decided we're going to take our next move of faith. We're going to invest in his kingdom. We're going to embrace his big picture project called the kingdom of God. We're going to make disciples here, there, and everywhere. And Ten years ago, we set out to launch 30 campuses. In 30 years, by God's grace, he has built his church. He is building his church. And he invites you to be a part of that. What will you do with your life? Jesus says, don't waste your life. Thank you, Jesus, for this story. I pray that here at Grace Church, Norton Campus, there would be a church-wide movement of prayer that makes prayer our first response, not our last resort. We want to be a part of what you can do. God, I pray there would be a culture of discipleship, a church-wide culture that makes your last command our first priority, disciples making disciples of Jesus. God, I pray there would be a mindset shift among us. We would put on a different pair of glasses, a mind shift of investment that sees advancing your kingdom as our primary investment, as our first investment. God, I pray in such a way then we would live lives surrendering to you our resources, our time, our influence, whatever you've entrusted to us, and that it would outlast us to the glory of God and the good of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.